As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Hello, it's Justin Briley here from Premier Unbelievable, bringing you some special editions of the C.S. Lewis Podcast this summer as we look at some of the talks and panel discussions recorded at this year's Unbelievable Conference, where Alistair McGrath was one of our keynote speakers. Today, we'll be hearing the second half of the panel discussion he was part of on speaking the authentic voice of Jesus in arts, science and global culture. This was recorded live at the British Library, and I led the panel, including Alistair, Sharon Dirix, John Wyatt, Sky Jatani and Joseph D'Souza on bringing Christian faith into the spheres of art, science, education and global justice. Just a reminder, if you want to get all of the video teaching and discussions from this year's conference, then just go to our website, premierunbelievable.com and click on training and events or there's a link with today's show. I'm also excited to bring you news of another free live online event from Premier Unbelievable. We'll be hosting it soon and you can be part of it. It's an online panel discussion titled Falling from Grace, addressing power, leadership and abuse in the church. It's going to feature a stellar panel of contributors, Amy Orr-Ewing, president of Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics and former vice president of Arzim, Rachel Den Hollander, the attorney and advocate for abuse survivors, Mike Cosper, presenter and producer of the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, and Diane Langberg, psychologist and trauma specialist. So we're bringing this together because of the series of leadership scandals that have rocked the evangelical church in recent years. And we'll be asking, what does this reckoning mean for the mega church ministry model? How do we ensure the voices of survivors are heard? And what must the church do to repent and be transformed? It's free to attend from anywhere in the world you can ask your questions too of this significant panel and again it's taking place on tuesday the 13th of september at 8 p.m uk that's 3 p.m eastern or 12 noon pacific do register your place now though and be part of it that's at unbelievable.live and the link is with today's show i'll remind you of it again at the end of today's program for now do join us and be part of that conversation for now, here's some further questions from the audience that we had during our panel discussion at Unbelievable 2022. Interesting question here, and I'll come to you, Sharon, and, and to John for this one, as both people who have especially you know, worked in the area of science. Um, someone anonymously asks, I'm a medical registrar, hospital doctor, doing a research post. As someone relatively new to clinical academia, it seems there's a lot of expectation to get publications, the next grant, and the need to get yourself out there. I recently went to a researcher's retreat where there was a lot of emphasis on making your own luck. I struggle with that idea as Christian. <laughs> um, 
Now, I know that God wants us to use our minds to the best of our ability, uh, but how do you negotiate these expectations coming from scientific academia about excellence uh, with living out your faith and being salt and light? Um, you were saying yourself that, you know, mm. that, that you've been given a, a position of responsibility when you are supervising a PhD or, or anything like that. Um, how do you respond to this person who's saying, how do, I, how do I navigate this whole area of academia as a Christian? Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you for the question. Um, and I'm sure John will have, have things to, to add. And I think, I think firstly, if we've come at, if we find ourselves in that situation because we have a sense of vocation that God has called us, in a sense, into that area uh, and to study in, in this area, then um, I think we can kind of there's a sense in which we can trust that, that God is guiding our life and um, almost that we don't need to kind of fight or kind of scramble over other people for our own success. And this is another way in which we can be distinctive from the world and um, that God is able to kind of direct uh, our lives and the success of a paper and the ideas that we get in order to write a grant and um, uh, set up a study and collect data and, and write it down and send it to a journal and get their feedback, that we can trust actually that if we do our bit, um, then God will actually, God will help us. Um, and and that's actually an act of trust, isn't it? And um, and trusting that, that God is sovereign and of course we're not to be inactive, we have things to do and there, there might be questions along the way. Am I, what are my motives for, for doing this? Am I doing it for my own success and promotion? Is this a shortcut where actually it will be better and have more integrity to take a slightly longer, harder route or avoid a particular study because I don't know, because it crosses an ethical boundary that you just don't feel comfortable with. And so there's this other area that you could work on. So there are all kinds of um, questions along the way. But I think bigger picture, before I hand over to John, is to say that if God has called us into that area, then there will be a way through it that doesn't require us to do it in the, the ways of the world. There will be a, a way to do it that is godly and where we have peace with what we're doing day by day and trusting that God is guiding. And it may be that, I mean, who knows that you could write one paper that actually has incredible influence, but it takes kind of five, 10 years to, to get there. Um, we don't have as much room for that kind of research anymore. You're frantically writing a new grant proposal every three years. Well, certainly when I was, was last in the field. And uh, whereas if you look at people of, of the past, of course, of independent research means they would often take years to make a really profound discovery. Um, but I think there's a there's a sense in which we we, mm. we need to trust the God that has called us into this field and help ask for His help daily. Yeah, John, anything to add to that? Well, I very much agree with what Sharon has said. Um, and the academic world can be a very very aggressive and and a very ungodly and, and, and vicious world. Um, I, I mean, C.S. Lewis uh, writes about this, you know, and some, he, he sort of says somewhere that the closest vision you can get of hell is, you know, it's the sort of <laughs> the senior common room, isn't it? <laughs> and, um, and there's something in that. There's something in the arrogance, the, um, 
the selfishness, the competitiveness. And yet, as you say, if God is calling you into that area, I never intended to be an academic. In fact, I was going to be a missionary doctor. I was going to go into Africa and I was going to give my life gloriously for the Lord. And, and I ended up in a very different uh, direction and, and ended up uh, ultimately as a sort of senior professor with multidisciplinary research team and and giving address, uh, writing papers in the Lancet and so on. And, and that was never my intention. And actually, I think it was the fact that God just opened this up. And, um, and, and, how, and how have you been received as someone who is open about your Christian faith in those academic circles? I've just been interested in that. Well, it's quite interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, inevitably, people know that you're a Christian. And yet, and, and, and sometimes, and how they respond, again, it's, it's about how you live. I think, obviously, they're watching you. And um, it, it's how you, you cope. And, and I, I think, again, Sharon put it very well, that it's knowing that actually this is not the most important thing in my life. Whether I get this paper into this journal, whether I get that massive program grant, it's not the most important thing in my life. And that in itself is, is a witness. It, yeah. it, it's yeah. indicating that there's something else. And it's, it, it's fascinating how at the, at the most unexpected times, you suddenly find a very senior person sort of opening up mm. to you and, and sharing some deep pain and loss and their struggle. And, um, and that's, of course, an amazing privilege. That, uh, so, yes, you, you get the snide jokes. I did, I did have a colleague of mine who was, who was a, a very uh, convinced atheist and uh, who we used to work together. And sometimes when he would say, well, I haven't a clue what's wrong with this baby, you'd better ask John. He's got the hotline. <laughs> <laughs> you, you get those comments. But actually, it was, it was well meant. And... Yeah. Uh, we, we can be salt and light if, and, and allow God to lead us in, in the way he wants us to go. Thank you so much. Um, let's have another question from uh, our, our audience here. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll come. Let's go to the gentleman down here. Just uh, There's someone just down at the front here who would like to ask. I think we've got a, a mic coming on your, your right there. But just, just while that's arriving to you, one more question. Because um, this has come up from someone on Zoom. Mark asked, how do we actually discover our vocation. That's a word that's already been used a couple of times in the conversation. A peculiarly Christian word in many ways. I only ever really hear it in Christian circles, vocation. Um, Alistair, any thoughts on, on what, how, if someone isn't really sure where they're meant to be casting their seed, being salt and light, how, how do you find that place? Well, listen, we're having some great questions. This one's, this one's a really good one. Um, I, think, um, I think some people do feel that sort of you can put a pin on a map and that's your vocation, like uh, like the Christian who opened his Bible at random and said, "I'm going to do a mission to Israel," because that's how <laughs> they come up. But I think it's, I think it's much more difficult. I think vocation is a process. It's about thinking, "I want to do what God wants me to do," but I'm changing. The world's changing, and I'm not quite sure what it is. But what I'm going to try and do is be receptive 
and move as I think God is directing me. So I have friends who would say, my first vocation was this, and then I, I did this, because they'd begun to realize that doing this prepared them for that. Mm. And I think it, it's very, very hard to, 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 to imagine somebody saying, I'm going to do this and that's it. It's much more about at every point in your life, realizing that your past experience um, is qualifying you, enabling you to do certain things in ministry or in professional life, which actually otherwise might not been possible. So I, I tend to see vocation as quite a fluid idea. It's, it's primarily, I'm not going to choose what I do. It's much more going where I feel God wants me to be, but being aware that actually that might be where it is now, but then it might be somewhere else. But what I did then might help me to do that even yeah. better. So I think I think I see it's a fluid idea, but it's so important to feel I'm doing what is right rather than sort of way what... Um, you know, what uh, uh, my friends say I ought to do. Yeah, yeah. thank you very much. Let's, uh, let's hear from this gentleman at the front here. Thank you. I suspect that historians of the future, and possibly now as well, will look at the first 20 years of the 21st century as being a horribly polarized and divisive time. Um, one example of it is the way somebody like Richard Dawkins uses Darwinism in a most militant, aggressive way. On the other hand, we have the late John Pokinghorn, who was able to combine an evolutionary worldview into his Christian faith. Uh, any thoughts on that? Sorry, that's a vague question. Well, but. No, it's, and we've got a few people well-versed to, to answer it. There's the good news. Um, so why don't we start with you, Sharon, on this one, as it's a, it's a science question at the end of the yes. day. Yes. Um, yes, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, I think this... This has obviously been been a, been a hot topic. Um, one thing that I, I do want to say at the outset is that um, there was a really interesting survey published by um, Theos and the Faraday Institute recently on uh, where public opinion is currently at. And um, what that survey showed, one of the highlights, is that this kind of more militant, atheistic perspective is, is really behind us, that actually... The, set, the sense in which the more moderate kind of expressions of atheism are much more uh, likely to be what we come up, uh, what we encounter, and, and we need to be sort of learning to develop responses um, on that kind of level. Um, obviously, occasionally there, there might be a more extreme voice, but there's actually a more nuanced atheistic perspective out there that we need to be equipped and responsive to as well. Um, obviously, the media love extremes and they will always kind of pick an extreme because that, that sells and that's sensational. But actually, we have a work to do to show that there is a, a more moderate response as well from the Christian perspective. Um, and so, yes, people like John Polkinghorne have, have um, been extremely influential and, and beneficial in this field to show that uh, actually, uh, you know, the, the, the notion that science and, and religious belief are incompatible is just not, not the case, not least because there are many noted scientists who are Christians and theists, and they don't seem to think those two things are incompatible. Um, and there are all kinds of, um, you know, ways in which we could describe the interaction between science and religious belief that show that they work extremely well together. In fact, uh, together they give uh, a more enhanced view of the world, and that's actually 
something that I mm. learned from Alistair McGrath, this actually the view of mutual enrichment, that there are different ways of looking at the world and together they give a, a more complete picture. Um, and so we need, we need to kind of look to the resources that unpack these things for us and, and help us to kind of sort of develop a nuanced response. Thank you, thank you. Um, can I bring you in again, Alistair, on this one? Um, and also, there's a related question from Matthew over on Zoom who says, how do we know where matters of science stop and faith begin without falling into some kind of God of the gaps type of argument? A few topics come to mind. Big Bang cosmology, evolutionary theory, mind-body dualism. <laughs> how, how do we know when to sort of press into a scientific theory for these things versus kind of giving it a divine explanation and that's often where the debate lies with folk like Dawkins and others. Um, so, so where, where do you think Christians well, are in it, that area? It, it's a very um, important question. I mean, on the new atheism front, I mean, the, the stereotype now is the new atheism is the religion of old white males. Mm -hmm. And actually, the, the, it is gendered, uh, it's racist, you know, we need to be very clear about that. I think that's something that we need to highlight. But your question is good because it raises this very interesting question about how we how we try to um, hold these things together without being over-stipulative or indeed uh, being sort of reckless in what we're saying. I think for me, um, the um, Oxford chemist Charles Coulson, um, who I, I had great admiration for, made a very important point. He says, look, Christians don't believe in the God of the gaps. God doesn't live in gaps. God is the one who gives us this big picture, which is able to make so much sense of our world, and that's where you look for God. The fact that there is meaning, the fact that we can construct a way of looking at our world which explains the successes of science, but so also shows their limits. They're not good on questions like meaning or the generation of moral values. So we can find a way of holding these together. And I often feel that, that trying to say that bit's God and that bit's not God actually isn't really all that helpful. The important thing is to say that, that the Christian vision of God as a whole really gives a vision of the world which places science and yet at the same time helps to realize we need more than that. I, I, and I want to ask the practical question on the back of that then, which is if, if you know, what Sharon gave, that Theos report is the case, that maybe the, the, the new atheism is sort of a bit more in the past and people may be a little bit more open, do you see that conversation changing in academia? Do you think there is any more openness to the idea of bigger explanations, God and so on? Or do you think they're still wedded to a kind of more of a quote-unquote Dawkins-style well, there's an age issue here, uh, and I'm kind of way uh, at one end of the spectrum, and then there are others who are at the different end of the spectrum. Um, and what I notice is, and this does fit in with the Theos uh, survey, that actually younger people are alienated by the dogmatic certainties of certain kinds of religion, but also Dawkins' atheism. And they just said, it's not that simple. And there's a brilliant review of Richard Dawkins by an atheist, just saying, look, this guy believes in these pseudo-certainties. He's just a fundamentalist of his own kind. I think people are now realizing it is more complex. And that actually may give us openings to talk about these things in a less polarized way. But I do take the point you made about polarization. It's really bad at the moment. And it's actually quite hard to have these conversations Better, I think, in private than in public. But I think that one of the things we can try and do is say it is so important for Christians to find platforms which you can have these civilized discussions. And that's what you guys are doing well, well because we need more things like this. Thank, thank, oh, John, yes, go ahead. Thanks. 
Can, can I just add that one of the reasons why I find some of this new technology, things like artificial intelligence and human enhancement, transhumanism and so on, is that it's raising age-old questions about what does it mean to be human and what kind of human society uh, are we trying to build for the future. And, and these are questions which actually thinking academics and scientists and technologists are really interested in and really concerned about. And so I think there are many new opportunities for us to engage as Christians because, amazingly, we have some thoughts about what it means to be human and what kind of human society we're trying to, yeah, to, yeah. to, to build. And so there are new conversations developing, and I'm very excited about the potential there are in these conversations. I'm going to ask Sky and um, uh, Bishop Joseph this. Um, Nicholas on the Zoom asks, how can church leaders equip Christ followers to reach spheres that are unfamiliar to them. So I guess how, how do we break out of our bubbles sometimes? Um, and maybe, Sky, you could, you could take that one first. How, how do people, you know, the, the church leaders, people actually on a Sunday help people to, to reach beyond just their, their immediate circle? It's a brilliant question. It's an important question. I used to be a pastor, so I feel like I have some credibility here, although I failed utterly in this capacity. Uh, <laughs> The, the first thing is, if, if a church leader is going to equip their people to engage their vocations through the gospel, the church leader themselves has to get out of the church building. We just, we have, to, so it, I think this is okay, it's definitely true in the United States, but throughout most of Christian history, a Christian leader, a pastor, a minister, a priest would spend the majority of their week outside the church building. Mm -hmm. They would meet their parishioners in their homes and schools and factories and prisons and hospitals. They would bring the presence of Christ, the sacraments, the scriptures to people, minister to them where they were. And as a result of that, they understood their sheep. They understood the, the vocations and work of the other people. And then that pastor would lead them in worship when the whole community gathered together on Sunday for worship and that then informed their preaching it informed their ministering it informed everything they did but then at some point in the last century depending on where you were we decided to reverse that model of ministry and we professionalized ministry and said now if you want to be ministered to you need to come to the minister's place of vocation or work you need to come into the church building and we the ministers are going to create a whole set of programs and resources for you, but it's on our terms, yeah. on our turf. Yeah. And the byproduct of that is most of us in vocational ministry have no idea what the lives of the people we are called the shepherd actually look like. <clears throat> we only see them in our office, in our building, in our programs, in our church. We don't see them in their homes, schools, offices, wherever they may be. So if you really want to equip your people, go discover what their lives look like. Have your church meetings outside the building. Have it at you know, an elder's workplace or office. Take lunches with people if they, where they work. Find out more about, be curious. This is one of the most uh, greatest deficits I see in American church leaders is they're just not curious. And if you're gonna shepherd and lead these people, you need to know who they are. You gotta get outside that building and discover, learn, ask questions, ask about what, is, what are the challenges in your vocation? What are the issues you're facing in your industry? And we've heard from some scientists here even today about the ethical questions around medicine and 
Like those are great questions that a pastor, if you have people working in your church who are in the medical field, you need to at least be conversant on the struggles they're facing so that as you minister to them, as you preach, as you teach, it intersects with that. Whereas if you have a church full of blue collar people who are facing other challenges in their environment, study those things and incorporate that into the way you're ministering. But I, I just think we've done a, a great harm to the vocation of shepherding people when you keep the shepherd out of the field and they don't know the sheep anymore. So it, it's a simple yeah. historical response, but my goodness, you've got to get outside of your church building. Right, great. Joseph, um, from your perspective as a church leader? Oh, I, I agree with what uh, our brother said uh, for the church and the church members, etc. But I also have to add that there has to be an inversion of category when it comes to defining what is Christian uh, ministry. Uh, we are locked in for 100 or some say 200 years in a particular model of ministry. A priest or a pastor or a bishop who is in the church and dealing with his flock when outside on the streets there is massive communal violence going on. Has forgotten what ministry is about. Jesus would not be sitting in the church at that time. He would be out among the people. And and uh, when, when this whole thing happened with my own life and all, I have to confess, before that, when all of the caste rebellion was going on, the women's rebellion of being sold into trafficking and all was going on, I was never on the street. I was locked in in my own world. And then when I said, yes, I want to do something about it, those very people said, we are going on a march on the streets, would you join us? Would you come? And I said, yes, I'll come. I'll be with you. I'll march with you for. So those are not political marches, but the way we have uh, manufactured Christianity is to think that's political. It's not political. It's life. When people are abused, killed, enslaved, they're fighting for their rights. And we've lost the concept of justice within the churches. So we are not there in their midst working with them. And the church and congregation learns from their priest and the pastor. What does he do when an issue is going on? And right now, look at the world, okay? We are going, this world has changed post-COVID, whether you accept it or not. Uh, there is this massive crisis of hunger going on. What does the church leader do? What does he has to, what has it, you know, what is he going to do? Is he going to think, oh, I must make sure I'm going to have a great uh, Sunday service with people are blessed, or he's going to say to the people, hey, people are hungry, let's figure out how to go and feed them. So you're inverting the, the way we understand ministry, and we, and I, for one, go to the early centuries of the church, and everybody is trying to find a secret as to how they change culture, how did they do that? And the story is clear. Mm -hmm. When the plagues hit the early centuries, the believers were out. Mm -hmm. 
feeding, caring, dying, not running because there is a COVID problem. You know, I'm going to hide in my house. So there, there, there's a lot of work to be done by the church to, so to the person. Mm. Uh, it's, there's no easy answer. We just have to work at it and go at it and figure out, okay, what do we do? How can I be example? I mean, I'm, you know, uh, like many of you, I had never, uh, other than my wife, held uh, and embraced, I mean, hugged, yes, but embraced, a prostitute in my life. Mm. Now, when I got the, our, our ladies, not me, they got involved and led us into this whole thing about dealing with ritualized prostitutes, and they brought them on our church campus. And then they said on Easter Day, we want to bring them into our church service. Prostitutes, 140 of them. Think about a Christian congregation trying to handle that. <laughs> My fellow priests didn't want to talk and they want to do anything. Yeah. Because it's out of their thing. And then they want to embrace you and touch you. Of course. So there is there has to be this radical turnaround taking place mm. if we are talking about transformation of culture. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> A lady who's going to ask a question from from the audience. Uh, yeah, it's um, it, it's more connected with what you've just said than I thought it was. But I wanted to talk about drama mm. and the degeneration of of drama, and particularly um, cartoonized undead like vampires, mm. which very small children watch and get sucked into. And then just I, I go to a lot of plays and modern. Um, playwrights seem to have this desire to have no resolution, no redemption, just unremitting misery, loutishness, <laughs> and and it and it just is totally depressing. Mm. And I and 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 so we're sinking into this place of um, well, this psalmist pit of of undead misery, uncleanness, sleaziness, and and it's just um, I wonder what as a Christian, how can we? How can we? Um, yeah. How do we do redeem anything? that sort of artistic yeah, culture yeah, 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 if it's yeah. if it's lost its way? Um, yeah. It's a great question. Okay, um, Alistair, we, I came to you for the, sort of the the art and culture piece earlier. So, do you see the same situation from where you're standing in terms of art? You know, going in this very sort of postmodern, nihilistic kind of direction. I, I do see it rebelling against um, simple plot lines and trying to make mm. it more complex. But in many ways, they're, they're witnessing the complete absence of hope and meaning and the inability of arts, as many now practice it, to, to capture these. And I think that one of the reasons why our questioner is so puzzled and outraged at this is something I share, which is um, that's only one way of reading things, and there are others. And for me, um, you know, we live in a world which seems chaotic and meaningless and pointless. And yet, when it's seen in the right way, when you see it from the perspective of, of a suffering Christ who entered into it in order to redeem it and redirect it, it can be seen in a very different way. So I think that this very powerful question does, I think, for me, raise two very important areas of reflection. Number one, is this the best they can do 
to inspire hope of transformation? Well, it doesn't take us anywhere. And then secondly, what are we doing to kind of way enunciate a Christian vision of hope and transformation in a suffering and seemingly lost world? Uh, what are we doing to try and say, there is hope and this is a way which we can do it. And you're right, we need to go back to the early church, who I think in many ways model for us um, how we might be able to go about this. Now, I don't have any easy answers, but I think there's a real issue here that um, uh, in older modern literature, it was very much about constructing meaning. This is the way things really are. I think we've lost that altogether. There's just a sense of a, a, a vast amorphous blob of nothingness. Mm. Um, and, and we've been told that's it. Well, you know, it's not. And I think what we need to do is, is be able to show we can tell a better story. Now, let me come back to C.S. Lewis, because you expected that, didn't you? I did. I was <laughs> expecting C.S. Lewis to crop up at some point. And C.S. Lewis wrote, wrote this, gave us wonderful sermon called The Weight of Glory. And in it, he said, look, what we have to do is tell a better story than the world is telling. That the only way you can break the spell of the stuff that's just been so beautifully described is to tell a better story and say, this is it, and it's right. And it brings joy and hope and meaning and value. Mm. And I think that we kind of hold back from this a little bit. Mm. And I think that's why, again, we need people in the media, people who can, in effect, craft the novels who will get this art. I think that's, that, that is something where we really need to think about how you might do this. Now, there are Christian writers who are doing this. But I do feel we need more, and, and I, I can't do it. Um, I, I mean, I have a vocation, but it's not that. <laughs> but hopefully someone listening to this will say, I might be able to do that. And if, if that's you, please do it. It needs to be done. Yeah. <laughs> so we're just going to ask one more question. I'll go to Sky for this one. Um, this is um, Carol on our Zoom uh, who's asking, uh, what about the many believers out there who no longer relate to the institutional church? And we've talked about the church and the way it can be reaching out, but there's a lot of people who were in the church, no longer in the church. They might be deconstructed, ex-evangelical, whatever the label is, um, and people who, who have kind of just maybe become disillusioned with the church. We've been talking about how we can be reaching out, transforming culture. How do we reach people who have just, you know, given up on the church sky themselves? Is, is there a way back? Well, there's always a way back. We have to believe that. That's 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 the way of Christ. It's always a way back. Um, I, interestingly, I think there's a parallel dynamic which uh, is happening in the church that fits what Alistair just described is going on in the culture. There is a despair and a disillusionment, and the stories that our cultures are telling reflects that. And there is a place then for the Christian to step in and tell, in Lewis's words, a better story, a truer, better story that that. Uh, taps into that despair and that disillusionment and offers real hope and joy. In the church, interestingly, those who were raised in the church, who have a significant background in the church, um, I think they're experiencing disillusionment and disappointment and frustration and despair, and they're walking away as well. And a friend of mine here in the U.S., a Baptist leader, Russell Moore, he's probably familiar to some of your audience as well, when he was asked about why are so many young people leaving the church, his response, and this is a paraphrase, is they're not leaving because they don't believe in Christianity. They're leaving because they don't think we believe in Christianity. <laughs> and that's, I think, the core of it is we, we have a story to share, but when you look at a lot of our churches, 
the evidence is that the people within them don't actually believe the story that they say they're proclaiming. Amen. Yeah. And that's where the first transformation needs to happen. We who claim the name of Christ, we who are church leaders, we who are responsible for these communities, we need to root ourselves in that story. And at least on this side of the pond, that story is being eclipsed in many of our Christian communities by a political story, by a story of, of conspiracy theory, a story that's primarily driven by fear and self-preservation rather than love and self-sacrifice. And so when people look at that, they go, well, what I see in Jesus and what I may read in the scriptures is compelling. That's the story I want. But it was always meant to be a story that was incarnated. It was incarnated in the person of Jesus, and it's now supposed to be incarnated in his church. And when they look at the church that they've been given, they don't see that story incarnate. So that's the transformation that really needs yeah. to happen. Um, the second piece I'll say is, if you are disappointed and disillusioned with the institutional church that you've been a part of or that you've left, okay, that's not the church. Um, in the U.S., we have a structure, it's called a 501c3, which means it's a nonprofit government-recognized organization, religious institution. 501c3s are not what Jesus came to this earth to establish. <laughs> he came to create a community of women and men and children who had been redeemed by his blood, who are living in communion with him and one another, bound by love and bearing witness to the reality of the kingdom of God. That is the church. And if you don't find that in a 501c3 institution, fine but you need to find it somewhere. So find that community of believers, whether it's a house church or a parachurch or whatever it is, let that be your community, that, that group of, of mutual support where you, as I said earlier, borrow one another's eyes to see what you can't always see and let that be your witness in the world. And hopefully these 501c3 nonprofit institutions we call churches, get themselves straightened out and figure out healthier leadership structures and really incarnate that story again. But if they don't, the church will be just fine. The church of Jesus Christ is going to thrive and be fine throughout the world. Nothing can stop it. Find pockets of people who incarnate that story and let that be your church. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Well, thank you so much to all of the panel. Um, it's, and, and thank you for all the great questions as well that we've had uh, in this session. Um, I'll let you exit the stage, folks. And, and can we just give another round of applause to everyone who's been with us? Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Joseph, John, Alistair. Hey, thanks for being with us. And just a reminder, too, that the material you've heard today and in the last couple of shows, plus much more, is all available on video download from our website at premierunbelievable.com. Just click on training and events there. Or to get the direct link to purchase this year's Unbelievable Conference, then just go to the link with the show notes today. Plus, we've that important upcoming event on church leadership abuse scandals featuring Amy or Ewing, Mike Cosper, Rachel Den Hollander, and Diane Langberg. You can be part of it on Tuesday, the 13th of September. There'll be lots of opportunity for audience Q&A. It's free to attend online. You just need to register in advance at unbelievable.live. Again, to be part of that important webinar, the links are with today's show, unbelievable.live. Next time on the podcast, we've another interesting C.S. Lewis scholar, David Marshall, joining me to talk about the case for Aslan. Do come back then.